This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. As I mentioned earlier in the year, we continue to make changes to the show, and now they include expanded content at the candidframe.com website. As of this past week, we are planning to include product reviews, commentary, tips, and even video tutorials. The latter takes the form of YouTube videos, which, though they will not be available as part of the podcast feed, will be viewable on the website or by subscribing to the YouTube channel. I'm also hoping to tap into the talent of photographers who have already joined in the Candid Frame Flickr group. It's always been my hope to engage the many talented photographers who listen to the show. Though I'm not able to interview all of them uh, on the show, I'm nevertheless hoping to find opportunities for each of us to communicate and share our mutual passion for photography. So check it out and let me know what you think by visiting thecandidframe.com. Now, the topics of risk and fear have launched many conversations with my friend and today's guest, Tony DeZeno, who makes his second appearance on the show. Though his passion for photography finds him speeding along in fast cars and hanging by his fingertips off the side of a mountain, two places you are not likely to find me, we, we both have a shared mutual respect for each other, both as artists and, and as people. His work in Afghanistan has, made, has given me another reason to appreciate and respect his path as an artist. And as he prepares to return again to that country still rife with war and conflict, I thought it would be a good time to sit down and reconnect. Hey, Tony. How you doing? Good to sit down and talk with you again. It's been four years. It's hard to believe. Too long. I've always thought about revisiting uh, that conversation with you because you're one of the, the people who I really enjoy talking to and you don't do it often enough. And re-listening to that conversation, there were a lot of things that we covered there. But I, I think I'd like to talk to you a bit about risk-taking. Because that was really part of our previous conversation, and I think it kind of pervades a lot of the stuff that we kind of touch on. We often talk about that great book, Art of Fear, um, and, and sort of the, that whole philosophy and that way of thinking. Let's talk about the first trip to Afghanistan. Let's start with there, because when we first talked, you hadn't done that yet. That's right. And um, you're returning to that place uh, on a project again. But let's let's talk about... You know the thinking involved in well. Tell us first about the about the project, and then we can get in get into the whole idea in terms of some of the yeah. choices you had to make to. In to make uh, it. November two thousand eight, uh, I traveled to Mount Kabul, Afghanistan, through Dubai with my comrade Shannon Galpin, who founded this organization called Mountain to Mountain. And what Mountain to Mountain does is they're in the business of uh, empowering young women through education through through um, programs that develop voice for women and children. And, and I had worked with Shannon before on, on previous projects, and when the invite came to go to Afghanistan, it was sort of the sum of a lot of experience for me, and I was really ripe to make that call, to make the decision to go. I mean, first of all, if you consider that it's uh, a place at the crossroads of history, not just because it's in the news as a conflict zone or a war zone, but the the very issues of just Islam and the West colliding, I think, is sort of the forefront issue of our time um, worldwide. And so 
the opportunity to be close to that or to be first person involved in that experience to see for for oneself it's i wouldn't say it's a temptation it's kind of an invite you can't refuse especially if you've spent time preparing yourself for those things and i mean preparing yourself as a citizen of the world if you're if your heart and mind is interested in what's happening in the world why we have the conflicts that we do and what are the sort of the prime causes and conditions behind those things so if you're genuinely engaged and looking at these ongoing stories you want to know really from as pure a source as possible what that's really all about so of course that that means there's something what i'm describing is sort of a pilgrimage because if you're if your research for example if all the information you take in through the news or through literature that you're reading from other people who have been there and written about it or in our case as photographers you know we're visually literate and so we're gathering this kind of collection of images that tell a story for us in ways that that words are insufficient so all these things sort of feed your imagination and are quite compelling but then again there's nothing like sort of having a great example set for you in those same people if the if you're looking at photographers as your heroes and in my case and you know, I can only speak for myself. If you look at uh, other conflict photographers and uh, people like the the artists from the Seven Agency, whom I was fortunate enough to meet when they came to, to do a seminar at Art Center, they put on a three-day show-and-tell of their work, and uh, it was uh, a symposium, really. And over the course of the three days, I had a chance to meet people like Gary Knight and Antonin Crotockville and, and, and James Noctway, and each one of them had a sort of a distinct impression on me. And when that happens, when you come across somebody that, whose work you've seen for years, like, you know, from going out and interviewing, you know, so many of these uh, wonderful photographers that you've recorded with, it has an influence on you because there's nothing like that uh, first-person experience. And so when I had that chance and that experience to meet these guys, I think that it stuck with me in a way that is the work that they're doing is important, and, and it's a tradition that should be upheld in a way, and that if I'm measuring myself as something of an adventure photographer over the course of my career, doing expeditions, doing, you know, sort of sporting events in far-flung corners of the world, well, you know, ultimately you've got to measure that against what do you hold to be the most meaningful. Yeah, and you say important photographs, and you're saying that... that you wanted to make pictures that meant something beyond whatever self-satisfaction comes from taking on the challenges of whatever the assignment is involved involved in the assignment, pulling it off and making the client or yourself happy. When that opportunity presented itself, did you feel like at the time that that was something that was lacking in the work that, that you were doing and that you felt like this was sort of a, a way of examining that part of yourself, not only as a photographer, but as a, as a person? Or? Yeah, I think you're on it. I think that it's a matter of being molded by your admirations. You know, in, in the everyday marketplace, you see people share their ideas, whether they be from the right or the left, and you can see how people kind of reveal themselves in a way, regardless of where they're coming from, in terms of whether they're molded by their admirations or their hostilities. And, and I prefer the former. I mean, I'm attracted to, to people who set the example that I want to live up to, as opposed to what I think is a much more default position that you see more commonly, that it's easier to, to sort of retreat 
into the safety of being a critic. And it's very rare that the critics themselves actually step into the field. So, you know, ultimately it comes down to, you know, measuring yourself. And when you're talking about what that means to me as a photographer, it's, it's a matter of really wondering if, if uh, you know, all the work that I had done up to the, the point of working abroad was just sort of preparation for it. How much was it, was it thinking about, am I really as good as I think I am? Am I really capable of being able to deliver the goods? Well, I, yeah, you're, you're onto something really important, which I'll just describe in general as an X factor. And it does relate back to that wonderful text about art and fear in that in your idealized mind, you know, as an artist, you have an ideal. But in fact, it's largely unrealized. I mean, this desire to, to be close to great work or to produce great work is sort of a, an impetus, right? And, and as you go out into the field on assignment or, or, you know, on personal work, what have you, you always strive to get as close to that ideal as possible. And that ideal may come from, you know, the examples that are set before you, people who have accomplished a body of work that's inspiring to you. So when you compare your present work to the ones that you hold up as, you know, masters of their medium or what have you, then you try to describe, well, what's the gap between my work and where that great work is? If my work is good, what's the difference between good and great? And it's in that gap, of course, that you have to put yourself in order to to have the trial, to see how close you can get to to greater work than you've produced previously. So to me, it, it's almost a matter of the work, the great work exists in your mind before it exists in the real world. And, and that's part of your imagination or even your desire. Your desire for that great work is, is a very important part of the attraction. And and it's almost a, a quantum physics kind of thing if you want to really get into it. It's without desire there's almost no attraction. So desire is, is a key important element in terms of that having some kind of a longing to be close to that. And I say to be close to it. It's like, you know, what's, what, what books do you have on your bedstand at home? You know, because I know I have books on my bedstand at home that I haven't read, but it's important that they're close. Like I have, I have uh, say, Dante's Inferno, right? And I know it's a classic. I know it's important. I haven't gotten to it yet, but I just know it needs to be close. You see what I'm saying? So there's, there's works like that that you know are significant. Well, you, you, you had the desire. You felt like you had the skill set and you had been moving toward this moment. But tell me about the moment. You, you land there. You're in Afghanistan. You're in – it's a couple of years, so it still was in it's, – it's not a good situation now, but it was even probably worse then. But all of a sudden, you're in the midst of that, and you're having to negotiate all the sort of obstacles and, and perils and risks that are involved in there. Tell me about how you were feeling. I mean, you're, you're, you're there. What were you, what were you seeing? What were you, what were you feeling? What was going through your head when all of a sudden it's like, okay, yeah, I, I got to show up and, and do this. Well, like any other expedition, you prepare. I mean, if you were to, uh, as they say, uh, go on a, an alpine assault and, and try to climb a mountain peak. You prepare. You know. You look at the existing literature of people who have tried and failed. You, you do your homework. You, you look at uh, what the in, inherent dangers are, and whether it's a mountaintop or, or a conflict zone, you do the same thing in terms of informing yourself as to what the realities on the ground are. Certainly, in a conflict zone, you want to have some kind of a, uh, awareness of the people around you in terms of people who are uh, sympathetic 
and um, even like-minded. For example, if the military presence there isn't actually an advantage to be associated with. So we did nothing in terms of, and I'm talking about Shannon and I going, nothing in terms of uh, showing ourselves as uh, Americans or, or wearing colors or even displaying our passports in a way that was easily visible. It was always a matter of being very low-key and respectful of the local traditions in terms of dress and manner and even the way you hold yourself and you move your body. Um, so when people say, you know, well, did you think about uh, getting some kind of security? You know, you can hire security bodyguards and this kind of thing. And I mean, some folks go to the extent of getting like a bulletproof armor-plated, you know, Toyota Land Cruiser, which is sort of the vehicle of choice for the United Nations and, and other people in that, that territory. And you might be more secure, but you're also kind of a higher profile target. So it makes you secure. It makes you a secure target. Whereas I'd re- much rather be off the radar. And so our driver and translator, you know, we, we had a, the glamour of a, a, an old Toyota Corolla or something like that, which is just like any other car on the street there. Just being mindful of relationships. Like we knew that the people that we were going to meet uh, in terms of our fixer and our translator were known quantities. There was no blind dates in terms of meeting somebody for the first time and not knowing what their affiliations or sympathies or politics were. We had come from the point of view of talking to our colleagues, other photographers who had been there, and uh, looked for known, faithful, loyal you know, relationships and people who are humanitarians by practice and this kind of thing, so that we were, we were meeting people who would understand our motive, our... Which was, if you can, if you can sort of clarify for people who are not too familiar in terms of what the work that the organization organization is doing. Well, the images were really a way of uh, branding the nonprofit, which is known as M2M, Mountain to Mountain for shorthand. And even the name itself is uh, kind of well chosen because Shannon comes from uh, Breckenridge, Colorado, uh, which is a proud little mountain resort town and people in that territory pride themselves on being from the rockies so when you're talking about sort of well-to-do uh, resort town kind of people how do you get them to connect to halfway around the world to you know a different culture a different language a different a whole different set of values and i thought shannon landed brilliantly on the fact that mountain to mountain relates to the pride of the territory that you can go from mountain to mountain whether you be in the, the rockies or the hindu kush you can relate to the fact that it's village to village, you know, a town to town from from here to there, even person to person. So by extension, that it really was a sort of a personal way to puncture that kind of otherness that most people have in their lives, which is just that they're living their daily life and are disconnected, you know, from people on the other side of the world. When in fact, you know, the reality is it's quite clear that we're all so interconnected and interdependent that these conflicts on far sides of the world do affect our, our lives day-to-day, affect our, our culture, our economy, our foreign policy. And it's, it's a matter of not being able to ignore it. So when you were there and you were making, and you were making the, the pictures, did you just, you know, besides the things that you just noted in terms of, you know, some of the challenges that you faced in terms of making the pictures as a, as a photographer, did you just go into sort of, an automatic mode where you're that, okay, everything that I've learned and I've shot, it's coming in the fore, or did all of a sudden the circumstances end up sort of shaping the way you worked and you saw in a much different way? 
Sure. I mean, it is, it's a different reality. I mean, you, a, a typical day would be waking to a, a very simple breakfast. You know, Shannon and I would be in a guest house and as such would be presented, you know, something simple like yogurt and nuts and, and this kind of thing. And then we would talk over the course of breakfast what, what the plan was in terms of who we were going out to meet, whether it be a, a minister of parliament or whether we would go to see meet uh, some other NGOs in the area to see how we would work with them. Because the idea is that when you're doing a startup and you're trying to find out how you fit in, in the world, specifically in this place, in Kabul, that you don't want to be redundant to other people's good efforts. And if, if you can sort of avoid that, then you, you've avoided a, a waste of time or money or energy. So instead, you know, you go out to meet people to see if you can complement what they're doing or even work with them. So not everybody's working in a vacuum, and that's really important. So our first trip was really about discovering who's on the ground there, what they're doing, and how it, how it went. But in terms of a, a typical day shooting there, our translator and fixer would arrive together in one small car and pick us up. On the block that we lived for that time, they had semaphores and concrete pilings and basically guard towers at the end of each block. So it's a, essentially a secure block. I mean, you can't walk because it's closed off. But we'd drive down this block, and in that short drive to the gates to leave the block, we would be listening to the local radio, and we'd get a brief from our translator as to where the latest attacks were, what sort of the most current status was on the most recent hostage negotiation. So this is all sort of the temperature on the street, and we'd decide where to go and where to avoid for that particular day's travel. So it was very rare that we would take the same route any, any given day for a lot of those reasons. And the grapevine there is so strong in terms of the word on the street that there were days where we heard before we even got into the car that it was just like, this is not a good day to go out. And, and you wouldn't even need to ask why. It just meant that tensions were so high something was going to happen. And, you know, and so there's a, almost a protective mechanism built in for people to be aware that something was going to happen and, and so to lay low and so forth. So when you're in that situation, you realize that, well, bad things can happen. This is a conflict zone. Um, attacks occur. Hostages are taken and so forth. And you just work as intelligently as you can with the info you have, not to put yourself ineptly into a situation. If it happens, it's because you've done everything that you can to intelligently work away from that and not, not to be a victim because of ignorance. The challenges and the risk that was involved, you could apply to any sort of thing that, that you're shooting, but particularly in this particular situation, did the challenges and the risk that were involved in producing the pictures elevate your own expectations of what the images needed to be? Yeah. Or did you sort of, sort of let that go and, and say, I just need to focus on the moment and make the best photographs that I can and worry about whether or not they meet some sort of self-imposed standard after the fact? Well, it's a little bit of both, honestly, because in a situation where you realize that, you know, this could be your last day if, if something bad happens and a bomb goes off too close to you or whatever, that's it. That's, you're done. It's the, the last picture you'll ever take. And you get time to meditate on that. If you're there long enough and, and you're tuned into the reality of the day-to-day -day life there, you get to think, well, today might be the last day I make pictures. And, and if so, this better be a fitting testament it should be the the best work that i can possibly produce i mean it's very motivating because you know one day you'll be right <laughs> whether it's here or there 
So one day, you know, just thinking that you're gifted this day here in this place, and, and the, the truth is, Ibarionix, the most beautiful things are quite often part of or exactly next to the most dangerous things. And so when you consider that this everywhere you look, and I mean everywhere you look, the people, the architecture, the, the action of what's happening around you, and I don't mean conflict, I mean the day-to-day life in this place, it's extraordinarily stunning. I mean, I'll give you one example. You asked about when I arrived and, and we came off the plane and you go through, you know, the customs or what, whatever, and you emerge from the airport. And the first thing that you can see that I noticed, and I, I remember writing this down in my diary, was that this, there's these particles in the air. It had, I've been all over the world and I've never seen anything like it. And I, I was like, what is this, this mist and it, I could only describe it, it looked like little tiny pieces of yellow cake, but they were floating, you know, they weren't heavy enough to fall to the ground. And so this, the air itself is just kind of saffron. And so right away, you're into a different space. I mean, a, a totally visually rich environment that you've never been in before. And that, that's where your experience sort of springboards from. From that moment, you know you're in some place extraordinary. And, and kind of staggering visually, and, and it just doesn't stop. It's a, it's a constant acceleration towards, well, what do you choose to shoot or frame or to look at? What do you look at you know, when everything around you is stark and, and, and kind of uh, remarkable? And that's what becomes your reflex comes into play, which is to say what you're looking at should be based upon all those things, your intuition of what, what's attractive, your intuition of... What is the most important thing in the in the in immediate space? And it's kind of like treasure hunting. There's a lot of interesting shiny things around, but what's the most important piece here? And and sometimes that's kind of obvious. I mean, if there are men with guns, then you pay a lot of attention yeah. to them, you know. <laughs> but uh, it's one thing to to see other photographers who make that part of their normal repertoire. I mean, you mentioned Nakwe before. We lost Tim Hetherington a couple of years ago. I'm glad you brought and, that up. And, and Joao Silva was didn't yeah. lose his life, but his life was yeah severely injured. So having had the opportunity to go out there and actually put yourself in a situation where you were taking similar, if not you know exactly the same risk, but very very similar. What perspective did that give you in terms of the choices that other photographers are making in terms of bringing images to the world? That you know are, for lack of a better word, important, valuable. That need to be, need to be made. Well, you mentioned Tim Hetherington, whom I had the good fortune to meet when he premiered the uh, Restrepo film, the documentary about the Corongal Valley that he and Seb Younger produced, and uh, was nominated for an Oscar. And so it was, um, you know, meeting Tim uh, again, like Nachtway and others before him, only reinforced that feeling in me that what he's doing as a photographer is so important. That that just confirmed for me that that kind of work needs to go forward, needs to happen, needs to continue. And you know, he was killed three months later in, in Misra, in Libya. I mean, just yesterday, I was um, speaking in John Brumfield's class here at Art Center because he was showing Restrepo, and we had talked about the film earlier. And he asked me to come in and give some of the behind the scenes on the film because um, when Tim premiered it, he was doing a question and answer period afterwards. And so I had some small insight to sort of the notes behind the scenes that uh, he and Sebastian were on about. So it's almost as if, like, it's, um, it's, it's kind of mandatory, you know? 
when someone gives you such a great example, I mean, I could um, read you a, a quote that I brought with me today. Yeah, go ahead. That, uh, yeah, I'm sure you know this quote, but it's one worth responding to because it reminds me exactly of the examples that, that Noctway and, and Tim Hetherington and, and others give us. It has to do with fear, you know? So what is fear but not how you deal with risk? So it reads, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It's our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, or fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We were born to make manifest the glory that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. And as we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. And that's what I get from those kind of people, those favorites that live in a liberated way, that they go to places that they know are dangerous or potentially going to be harmful to them, but they still go. And they go sort of, as Nakway likes to say, as the messenger, when not everybody can go. But there are people who can go. And so when I've spent a great deal of my life acting as if I'm one of those people, and then I get that chance to go, I would have to renounce everything that I've done up to that point not to go. So I have to go. And and it just reinforces itself. It's like, um, did we ever talk about the Maslow's hierarchy? You know, everybody knows that food, clothing, and shelter is right there on the, no, the base. So. Well, you know, that's sort of what the basic human needs are. And, and sex is in there too. Food, clothing, shelter, sex. But And everybody knows at the top of the pyramid, of course, it's self-realization. This is like the fulfillment of all your talents. But not many people talk about what's in between those basic necessities to sustain life and that climbing the pyramid up to the self-realization. In between those two things, from the banal to the sacred, are things that have to do with creating meaningful work, you know, the respect of your peers, these, these kinds of significant things that you come to uh, over the period of time of, of working towards something. And if we're, you and I are both employing our talents, whatever they are, to realize those things, there does come a point where we have to ask ourselves, okay, am I doing meaningful work? Does it, does it have meaning? And is it significant, you know? And that respect from others in terms of the, the kind of esteem that you have uh, is which others are these people that you respect in the first place and so forth? That's where my mind's at, you know, is that uh, whether or not you get to the top of the pyramid, it's that process of striving that's, that's really where it's at. Hearing you read that quote makes me think of uh, my father, who grew up from very, very modest means in very difficult circumstances and didn't finish, I don't think he even finished middle school. And I think about my life today and all the opportunities that I have and the fact that I enjoy the luxury of being able to lay claim to being a photographer and a writer and and the podcast. Yeah, it's a privilege. And and I think about that that privilege if if anything demands that I live more bravely. <laughs> you know, it's funny. 
Yeah, I, I completely relate to that because I'm, I'm currently contemplating a project. I mean, I was driving to school here to, to meet you, and I was thinking about, okay, uh, with what free time I have in the next couple of months and the skills and the resources I have, and I was thinking about you and, and how you uh, have clearly stepped up your game technically and, and, and have moved forward. And and, uh, and just as the pride of association, I'm thinking, like, i got to keep up. Environex <laughs> is, you know. So I was thinking to myself, well, best advice. Wouldn't it be something to interview people in the know who've been through things? And that tends to be people who are older. And ask them what the best advice they ever got was, you know, and then create, you know, a documentary just of people sharing the best advice they ever got so that the whole thing relates into, I don't know, kind of a treasure chest of best advice from a a multitude of different people from different walks of life. And when you describe your dad and being brave, I have to think that that's probably the, the best two words of advice I ever saw. It was actually engraved on a ring. And that ring I bought and gave to a, a dear friend of mine. And, and the only two words, the only two words it says is, be brave. Meaning, you don't have to be fearless. I mean, that's almost impossible. But be brave suggests being brave enough. Like, just enough. It's like standing on a high dive. I mean, how long do we stand there before we jump? Well, there's trepidation, and it's like there's a measure of the, you know, is it windy? Is the pool full, filled up? You know, there's all these things you would do before you just leap blindly, right? But you still have that moment of like, do I go, do I not go? But ultimately, you're brave enough to go, and you jump. So to me, that that wonderful little inscription on that ring is something when people ask, you know, what's, got any advice? Like next week I'm going to speak at uh, a public library as a favor to a, <laughs> a friend. And, and they're young kids around, right? And so when they see sports and action stuff and, and sure enough, there'll be one or two who are interested in photography and say, you got any advice? And I'm just like, be brave. you gotta, got to be brave enough to, to pursue. We're defined as much by the choices that we make as the ones we don't make. And when it comes to bravery, you know, I look at a lot of things that you do, and I see that in you. I see that you've made some choices that I would have a very difficult time making. <laughs> I know that about you, but I, I'm really curious, and I, and and. I, I would really love to hear a moment where you weren't as brave, where well, you made the choice, where you made the choice not to do something out of fear, and how that ended up impacting you. If you, if, if I can ask you to be as frank as that, oh, I sure. Would really I mean, it's you know, it. I love that. You, first of all, it's one of your geniuses to be curious and to ask the questions you do. And you know, one of the only talents I have is to state the obvious, which isn't a great <laughs> talent at all. But it's it's there are places where it's useful. So when you ask about a moment where it's like, okay, uh, like I said, being brave doesn't mean being fearless. I've been rock climbing and Joshua Tree, and that's always kind of a fun exercise about, you know, true grit and how high do you go and how exposed are you. And, and, and I can remember reaching the crux move, and the crux move is always the most difficult. It's sort of the tipping point. If you make it past the, past the crux move, you'll make the rest of the route. But it's that moment, of course, that you face up to. And I can remember distinctly where, you know, the sort of the classic climbing things is I've, I've overdone myself getting up there. And so you start to feel not only the burn of the lactic acid in your arms, you know, and you're getting gripped, you know, the expression was you're white knuckling and your leg starts doing the singer sewing machine thing. And so, you know, I'm high up on this rock and, and exposed and I, I know I could fall. I'm belayed, so I won't 
be seriously hurt, but I could fall and I'm really exposed. And, and the, the question is just, do I go? You know, do I take that chance to go to a place where I'm going to fall and or fail or can I do it? And so it requires a, a, an exacting honesty. You have to be really honest with yourself. And that means putting your ego aside. I'm not there to show off for anybody. I'm not. It's all for me. This is this is why the exercise is deeply satisfying. And so being a, deeply honest with myself in that moment, I made the decision to retreat. It is something of a defeat, but it doesn't destroy. And I think that Hemingway kind of said that before, a man can be defeated but not destroyed. And being a big Hemingway fan, I, I related to that sentiment. It's like, okay, today I wasn't prepared. I didn't make it, you know. And, and I wouldn't confuse bravery with being foolhardy. If I had reached for that next handhold or foothold, I would have peeled. I would have, I would have been fatigued to the point where I wouldn't have made it. It would have been a bad fall in terms of the exposure I had. I would have survived because I was on the rope and, you know, that kind of thing. But it was just a calculated risk. And I, I know enough not to be uh, stupid about the risk. Yes, you know, it's, it's a matter of I do want to measure up, but I don't necessarily want to be dishonest with myself and go farther than, than I should. And that's what I think the fear, if it's useful at all, is about preservation. I mean, that the rock climbing analogy is... is sort of, you know, generic, it's predictable. But the same thing applies if you're on the ground in Afghanistan and somebody says, hey, there's this, this location 60 kilometers out, but the road there is kind of sketchy and they've got IED reports. And, but if we get to this place, you know, you'll have incredible pictures. And that happens. And I can tell you it's happened where I'm like, not cool, really not cool, because it's something so far out of my control if, if an explosive device is planted on the road and I just randomly run over it, knowing that it could have been there, then I'm really, what did I do? I just traded the potential for a great photograph for my life and limb. So if I have a say in the process, I definitely want to make sure that I'm being brave enough to go but not foolhardy to go for a reason that's just about temptation. You know? Because no one photograph, I mean, Robert Kappa might disagree, but no one photograph is worth dying for. You know, it's, I think it's all the people we hold precious, like Tim Hetherington or anybody else, you know, of this caliber, um, we would prefer to have around still, creating more work, more uh, contributing more to that conversation and, and uh, changing minds and influencing people for all the right reasons. So for myself, speaking for myself, I'd rather be around, which is why I have to give kudos to Sebastian, who wrote one of the most beautiful tributes to Tim. Uh, that you can find online. I won't read to you at length here, but it's if you really want an insight into the heart and mind of people who go, you know, uh, that tribute is the finest I've read. And uh, as further testimony to him, Sebastian started this event called RISC, R-I-S-C, which is reporters instructed on saving colleagues because Tim bled out from a leg wound. He was uh, hit by an RPG and, and his femoral artery was damaged and and he could have been saved, and that's, that's the, the sad part, the saddest part about that, is that no one around him immediately knew how to triage that and give him first aid, and he bled out. So it, that is truly, in my mind, a crying shame. So what can you do from something so bad uh, except to try and create some good, which is what Sebastian's done? So um, he's making it a global event in terms of traveling. Um, the first one was in New York. Um, the next one will be in London. And it's an invite only on submission 
and they they sort of curate, you know, who submits and who gets selected, and and everyone who is chosen for the training is given without any expense the kit that travels with them. So that when they go back out in the field, they're not only trained but they're equipped. And uh, so I've uh, actually been talking to Sebastian about that, and hopefully we're going to get him to come out here and and do a panel discussion on his Restrepo film in the near future. But uh, in the meantime, he's actually going to carry that to Lebanon as well as London so that it's not just Western or Anglo photographers, but, uh, I mean, Lebanon's the mirror of the Arab world. You have Shiites, Sunnis, Christians, and, and everyone there. So that's a really smart thing to do, I think, in, in lieu of, you know, a loss like his partner, his, his buddy. And um, so I've got big respect for, for that kind of gesture. Well, you, you have plans of returning to Afghanistan to work on a, on a project again. That's right. In the, mountain, the mountains. So why don't you tell us uh, more about what this particular trip is about? And one of the more interesting things about it is that it involves a collaboration with photographers yeah. from Afghanistan. Yeah, that's the beauty of it. Uh, Shannon herself has always looked at um, sort of the highest level of branding for her nonprofit. And Mountain to Mountain has really done a a splendid job, and I don't just say that because I'm a photographer who's worked with them, but as a board member who contributes my opinion in terms of advice for direction, this kind of stuff. But she's always aimed high in terms of the the taste level involved. I mean, if you look at the sort of competition that exists for people's attention, you know, whether they're going to be contributing to a cause or not, it has to be something they believe in in the first place. It has to be something that, that, that touches their heart, you know, in terms of the pathos involved. And, and she knows well enough. I mean, she comes from the arts and, and is a writer, a beautiful writer herself, but she's got a big respect for photography. So early on, she and I talked about photo exhibits as being a very a splendid way to draw people in. You know, I mean, there's something about the fine art of photography that is seductive on many levels. And when you add the history of the moment, certainly the the drama of the location in terms of Afghanistan itself being a profound stage for, for human drama, and how topical it is. All these things, all these factors sort of ramp up the magnitude of, of the meaning in the work. And, and more than that, she's, she's somebody who's lived abroad for more than 10 years at a time and, and spent time living and working in Lebanon, so she does have a, an insight to the Arab world that uh, a lot of people in mid-America, or Colorado for that matter, don't have. So Shannon, as a leader of this was clear that she wanted to include Afghan photographers in any statement that was a group photo exhibit. And, and so she's produced this show called The Streets of Afghanistan, so-called because it's um, literally on the, on the street level of real, real people and Afghan and Western photographers, uh, myself included. And you can see it at streetsofafghanistan.org if you surf to that and, and get a scope of the show, which is pretty massive. I mean, most fine art galleries, you know, show images that are framed, you know, 1620 or maybe bigger than that. But this, she's really taken a sort of a stroke of genius where she had them on the latest technology printed on screens that are like pop-up tents, 10 foot wide by, you know, 8 foot high and highly portable so that the show is, is nomadic and it travels, you know, quickly to from <laughs> venue to venue. So this this trip to show in Kabul is sort of the homecoming after making a tour in the States. The, the whole idea, the premise, the, the mission of the project was to bring the show back to Afghanistan because there, there's not been a public exhibit of photography in the capital, and therefore not for anywhere else in the country, and, 
in the post-Taliban era. So we'd be the first to share this work with the public and, and have it reflect, you know. Um, and as, as she describes it, it's really a reflection of sort of the, not just the face of the place, but the soul of the place. And, and that, I think, is underlined by the, how authentic the work is coming from Afghans themselves. I mean, we can go as strangers in strange lands and observe, you know, but there's nothing like people reflecting their own. So I'm very proud to be part of that. And we'll go back again around the time of the elections, just like we did the first time. It's heady stuff just because you get the feeling, even on the smallest scale, that your work is uh, touching somebody or, or uh, affecting someone. And uh, so I think any photographer, you know, with, with real salt wants to have that day, you know, where you, you can actually attend your show. I mean, perhaps if you, if you leave too early like Tim did, you have to do that in spirit. I'd, I'd rather do it in person. This involves, you know, um, as you mentioned, procuring some money, some funds to yes. making this happen. So how are you guys? How are you guys doing this to make sure that this happens? I'm glad you asked. Open source funding through that lovely vehicle platform called Kickstarter. So we have presented our our case, and Kickstarter loved it, and so they they launched us uh, just this week. And you can go to kickstarter.com or you can go to my Facebook page uh, and just surf to Tony DeZeno and you'll see it listed on my wall. Now, there's another Tony DeZeno out there who's my cousin, but he's, he's a motorsports writer, so don't confuse him for the, the photographer. It's easy. If you, if you surf to the Facebook page, you can find the link or, or you can look up Mountain to Mountain, which is uh, typically spelled with a, a number two between the two mountains. So it's kind of cute that way, but uh, memorable. And you can contribute. And, of course, it's incentivized. That's sort of the fun part of uh, any invite for people to engage in a project. Because if you look at Kickstarter, which is really quite clever, it's almost entirely driven towards creative endeavors and, and artful ideas, whether they be books or, or films or um, unique products that are, are highly designed and this kind of stuff. For our incentive, you know, we've turned this towards the higher the, the gift – because it's, it's a gift, you know. If, if we raise the money, then the people who have reached a certain standard, and I, I can't remember off the top of my head what it is, but, but there's ownership involved in terms of the, the reward for, for example, the photographic prints. And above and beyond that, like the next level up would be, okay, uh, for a, a certain amount of money, you can have a live conversation with us while we're there in Kabul. And so you get to, to visit that much closer to the experience uh, of the exhibit opening and being at the show. And so whether we Skype or, or do something else like that, there's that kind of, again, that close, how close can you get to the subject? And, and ultimately, if people arrived as um, a real angel and made a major gift contribution, they could come. They could actually attend with us and, and spend a day in the field. So those kinds of things are how we've ramped it up to invite people to, to participate. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating that you're at a point in your life where you want to take the, th the gifts that you've been given as a photographer and give back. And it's interesting that we both have the opportunity to teach young, upcoming photographers who, for lack of a better word, so self-obsessed in terms of what they can, what they want to do, what they want to achieve. And yeah, that's normal. I mean, yeah, and that's that's normal. But there's so many things that you try to share with them. But considering the perspective that you've gained over the last couple of years, what's 
What's the thing that you really try to implant in them or, or give them? Well, just that, that they matter. Everyone has a voice and, and an opinion. And my whole drive is that they have an informed opinion because there's nothing like an opinionated person who's completely, you know, arguing out of ignorance. That's not much use. So I, I underline that I, I take them seriously. And I expect them to take themselves seriously as the emerging artists that they are and the, the practicing professionals they'll become. Um, and as such, that they're citizens of the globe. And, and I fully expect them as artists in full to participate and, and to make some kind of a difference and that they're not just anonymous and uh, detached and, uh, you know. I mean, the worst thing that a person can be in my eyes in terms of failure is just someone who's cynical and, and jaded and indifferent. I mean, to me, all those things are kind of like, ah, uh, that's underwhelming, you know? I mean, I, I really appreciate the late Howard Zinn who describes that, uh, you know, our, our big problem, our real problem is just the lack of capacity for a sort of a deep moral outrage at things that are unjust and wrong. And he's so right about that. You know, it's not that we have to go around ranting and raving. It's when we do go around ranting on something that is unjust and being really upset about it. The next question is, of course, well, I hear you. Now what are you going to do about it? And that's exactly what the impetus was for Mountain to Mountain with Shannon, who is really good at citing the things that upset her and outrage her. And, in fact, that's why she's a brilliant writer. She can, she can articulate that. And... She got tired of listening to herself preaching off the soapbox and got down off the pedestal and decided, I'm not going to be just one more of these critics. I'm going to do something about it. And, and there's a beautiful short film on her that the uh, Move and Shake Foundation produced. It's only a 15-minute, uh, but it's a gem. It's, it's now at the uh, Telluride Mountain Film Festival, uh, or, uh, whereas the Outdoor Retail Show is, uh, has a film festival on now. So you can find it online, and it's, it's really a perfect insight to what motivates somebody like Shannon in terms of her humanitarian push. Like, why would she do this? Why would she risk as a mother when she has a nine-year-old daughter to go to a place like this where she might get hurt or killed? And, and this film answers that in that it's, it's not in spite of her daughter. It's because of her daughter and what kind of example she wants to set to her about the world she wants her to grow up in. And to me, that's just that's where it's at. So I think very much like that myself. Well, my last question is to ask you to recommend another photographer for <laughs> us to discover and explore. And it can be anybody, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that be this time and why? Well, with, with a, a kind of a sad note, there's a lot of wonderful photographers to look at. And, and uh, Seamus Murphy is one of them. He's sort of a, um, a mystic in that he's difficult to find. I don't know if you can say anti-establishment, but his work in Afghanistan and elsewhere is pretty magical. And I say that, and I've used two words now that connote something transcendent, mystical and magical, when talking about his work. And it's, it may be a persona that he's built up that he really uh, maybe has calculated or not. Maybe he's just so cool that he's a mystery man. But the work speaks for itself. So if you look him up, you'll see that uh, there's something there that that is as special as any of the other photographers we've talked about. Um, otherwise, I would also, I mean, I can't ignore Tim Hetherington. And even though we've reached the end of that body of work because he's no longer with us, the work that exists is profound and important. And if, if you really want sort of an insight into 
mind of, of people who go. You should look at the video vignette he made just as a, an art piece into itself, which you can find easily if you look online. And it's, it's actually shot, I believe, in Libya before he was killed. So these kinds of things are powerful in themselves. And, and it's really a great question to ask because, you know, where do we go for our inspirations and our, our re-energizing of ourselves when the world beats us down and we get fatigued and, you know, and, and bummed out or sing the blues? It, it's always a matter of going back to those things that remind ourselves that of our core value. You know, what are the things you aspire to? And, and uh, you know, am I going to be the hero of my own life? I don't know. You, you have to constantly ask and, and apply yourself to the things that you hold up as the standard. Tim and Seamus Murphy and James Nockway and all these guys are, are those things, those people who re-energize me and build me up. And you're one of mine. Oh, <laughs> well, the, the respect is mutual, man. So where do people go to find out more about well, of course, my website is there, and uh, as always in constant need of update, but it exists at um, dizino.co.uk, which is uh, simply my last name at D-I-Z-I-N-N-O.co.uk. Of course, you can find me on Facebook if you want to chat about things. But uh, more than anything else, I'd, I'd be interested in, in seeing uh, you know, what people think themselves about uh, the work you know, I mean, it's always a matter of inviting comment and criticism and suggestions. And, and so that's, that's wide open. But if I should say, if, if anybody does comment and criticize, they should also show their own work so that it's fair as fair. You know, <laughs> fair as fair. All right, Tony. Thank, thank you. you. No, thank you so much. The Candid Frame is supported by donations from people just like you. You can help support the work we do here by visiting the website at thecandidframe.com and contributing using PayPal. You can also support the show by writing a review in the iTunes Music Store or by adding a link to the podcast on your website or blog. The editor for this show is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. Music is by Kevin McLeod. And this is Ibadian X, and this is The Candid Frame.